We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness this week on The Meaningful Life is the psychotherapist Philippa Perry, who's the author of the bestseller, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. For my listeners here in Berlin, and to prove I can speak a bit of German, it's called Das Buch von dem Du der Wunsch deine Eltern hätten es gelesen. You might have seen Philippa on the Channel 4 TV series Art Club with her husband, Grayson Perry. They have a grown-up daughter called Flo. I love the title of the book because it captures the opportunity and the challenge of being a parent. The challenge because you'll be confronted by all the unresolved stuff from your own childhood and the opportunity because, as a recent guest on this podcast said, motherhood is a journey of self-discovery. And you don't have to pass on all the old family baggage along with the best china, the pearl earrings and the sherry decanter. Hello, Philippa. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Hello, Andrew. So being a parent is guaranteed to push your buttons. Why? Well, whatever age your baby, child, teen, adult child is, they will remind you on some sort of bodily level what it felt for you to be that age. Now, I don't know why this is, but it seems to be some sort of somatic memory gets nudged by our children. And if we had a sort of lovely, easygoing, carefree time of it, this is not likely to be a problem. If, on the other hand, say at age two, your parents got divorced and your whole world fell apart, when your child gets to age two, they might just bring up these feelings that you had when you were two that you might not even consciously remember. And you might start to want to push your child away. You might want to think, oh my God, my kid's annoying. You might have got on very well with them. And now you might be calling it the terrible twos or some (laughs) other cliche. But if you feel charged, you know, you have a charged emotion around your child, it's very likely that what is happening is that you are trying not to remember what it was like for you to be their age. I mean, I'm not saying this is a guaranteed recipe for life or anything, but it seems to have come true time and time again with my clients and my supervisees' clients. I keep seeing this recurring. And my clients, because, you know, if their parents got divorced when they were seven, my clients, when their children reach seven, suddenly start thinking, I mean, obviously, they don't suddenly start thinking, oh, maybe we should get divorced. But it's often the case that you find exactly the same stuff happened when they were a child. So I think that's a very good place to start. Yeah, I had a client once who I mentioned in the book, actually, and he decided he wanted to get divorced. He said, I'll just see the kid at weekends. I can't really cope with this full-time parenting thing. I've had enough. And I said, it's been fine up until now, hasn't it? And he went, yes. So what's changed? Oh, it's just, you know, nothing. And after a little bit of digging, his father left when he was two and he never sort of saw him again. But what's really interesting about this case to me is that his grandfather also left when his father was two. So this was like going to go on for three generations and maybe more because I never went any further back. And when he actually did have the courage to get in touch with what it felt to be abandoned by his dad, he found his kid was not so bad after all. And they are still together to this day. And I still get Christmas cards, which is very nice even though the child is now grown up. (laughs) I'll give you a personal example of this stuff going back through the generations. I was on Zoom with my niece, who's just recently had her second child, and she was around my sister's, her mother's house. And my sister was helping with my niece's elder child somewhere else in the house. And I could actually hear the child and my sister, and my sister sounded exactly like our mother. It was just quite spooky. And 
I recognize, because I'm, this is what my job is, I recognize some of my mother's behavior and my grandmother's behavior. Mm. And so here was somebody who was born a whole century beforehand is still impacting right now a child. And that is just spooky. How I like to think of it is that we're not really the separate individuals we experience ourselves to be, but we're links in a chain. And if we can become a little bit more aware of that, we have a choice about whether we're the same shape link or we change the shape of the link. I mean, I think each generation does change the shape of the link. I'm a different parent to what my parents was, and I think my daughter will be a different parent to what I was. Slightly better each generation, I like to think. Can you give a personal example of when you suddenly found yourself turning into your mother when you were dealing with your child? I think what the messages that sort of came up for me would be the same messages that came up for my father, I think was more of an influence on me than my mum, mm-hmm. really. And it would be when my child was being a little bit incompetent because she hadn't learnt manual dexterity yet, and she'd be trying to do her shoelaces up and she'd be a little bit clumsy about it. I had a huge, massive voice in me that wanted to go, oh, let me do it. Hurry up. Sort of really sort of angry. Gosh. And because, of course, I've had 25 years in analysis, I could catch this and realize what it was. And what it was, was that I was being reminded of when I was being made to feel incompetent for not being able to do something quickly and speedily. And I just couldn't bear it. So I just wanted to do her shoelace up for her. I couldn't bear her fumbling. But luckily I have had all that therapy and I was being able to say, you take your time. It (laughs) takes a while to get the hang of the shoelace lark. I think you're getting there, you know, but inside I was screaming. So that is what I mean by the link we pass on might be different. Because I had that inside screaming and I'm hoping when her child is trying to do up a shoelace, if we still have shoelaces then, when she's trying to do up a shoelace, I hope she'll feel the patience that I tried to show. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if some of my impatience leaked out because these things do, don't they? We're human, but I think that you have a very central question in the book, which I think is such a good one. I'm going to pass it on, is you should ask yourself, where does this emotion come from? Explain why that is such an important question. I think if we've got a supercharged emotion like I had with my daughter's shoelace, it does not belong in the present. That is the clue. Because why would you be so impatient about a child learning to tie up a shoelace? Because you've got to get to the shops and because you've got to get the housework done. Yeah, but we know that the shops are going to wait. And if if I've got to get to the childcare so I can go to work or something like that, we know that I can get up in time so there's time to do up shoelaces. So it's not about that. It is about my stuff. And that's how you tell. If there's a charge, you might want to quickly write it off and say, it's because we had to not miss the train or something. But you can always make an excuse for it. But if you just make an excuse for it like that, you're not going to learn anything more about yourself. Good point. Now, this is one from my family, and this is one that I've worked very hard to deal with. And that is that naming it doesn't make it worse because our great fear, and I know this was certainly my mother's fear, that if you look deeper, you'd find all these problems and it would make it worse. Yes, that was the same message that I got uh, as a child growing up. Basically. I'm 61, about to become 62. We're almost twins. We are indeed. So our parents came from the war generation and there was so much sort of trauma around then that they thought it was so much better not to talk about it and to push it all under the carpet. And then when the normal traumas of childhood, such as I don't feel very well, I've got tummy ache, I feel sad that my friend's gone away or whatever it is, don't talk about it and it will get better. And this message was given to me so deeply that I was never sure, even as an adult, whether it was safe to explore emotions. So what I did to try and find this out, although this was an unconscious motivation at the time, so I went to work for a suicide helpline and I told myself and indeed people interviewing me for that voluntary job that I wanted to give back to the community. But actually, I actually believed that at the time, but I realized while I was there, I was there to see whether it was safe to acknowledge feelings. And after working there for about five years, 
I allowed myself to realize the reason that I was there. And I had learned that not only is it safe to explore some of these inchoate feelings that might be milling around in us, it was helpful and it saved lives. And I saw it saving lives. So then I thought, well, I guess I dare go into therapy then because I didn't dare before. You I didn't always, dare. I, no, I had to sort of watch other people doing their work and encourage them to do their work before I dared to do my own. Wow. Because that message of don't explore your feelings was so strong from my parents that I had to do that like years long experiment before I dared to do it. And the thing that's so powerful is a lot of these messages are never actually said. Nobody in my family ever said talking about it will make it worse. I can't remember that either. Those silent messages are even more deadly because if they say, you know, talking about it will make it worse, you can shout and scream at them and run upstairs and slam the door. But if it's never actually said, you can't really challenge it because it's all, as us therapists would say, unconscious. But those ones are the most powerful. It's covert. It's unconscious. And you feel you cannot challenge it because it hasn't actually been spoken, but you sort of feel something uneasily. I often say to clients, what would the family motto be? Now, it's not one that's ever actually said, but imagine above the door, Mm. you put the family motto in mind, it would be talking makes things worse. You know, I don't actually always say what it is in mind, you know, what would it be in yours? Mine would be don't make a fuss. (laughs) (laughs) The times I was sent back from school with a temperature because (laughs) I didn't know whether I was ill or not in the end because I would say I don't feel well and they go yes you do you feel fine went oh right I do okay I I feel fine vomit vomit or whatever you know stagger down the stairs yeah and it's funny how often our whole lives are sometimes a fight against that you know here am I, I've become a therapist I've written so many books and now I'm talking to you about feelings in fact Basically, all of my podcasts are about feelings, ultimately. And I would think that you are not somebody who doesn't make a fuss about stuff. Now, I don't really make much of a fuss, but I do believe strongly in trying to find the words for feelings now. Because I think if we don't find the words for our feelings, we don't become the boss of our feelings. They become the boss of us. So when Mm. we find the words for our feelings, then we can contain them. And I think it really helps when you're a parent as well, if you can help to put your child's feelings, a bit like a therapist might have a go at, into words too. So, you know, when the kid is kicking off, it's quite useful to say, you are so angry about that. Because then they learn that they can verbalise what they're feeling so they don't have to throw the bricks against the wall or whatever it is they're doing. And eventually they learn to put their feelings into words, which helps them to own them and process them and not be overwhelmed by them. So they learn how to manage feelings. I can remember when my daughter was about four and I'd been been doing this because I sort of believed in it, but I didn't have any proof for it at all. But I remember my daughter was about four. She said to me, I'm going to get very angry in a minute. And I thought, yes, we're making great progress here. And I can remember saying to her, Yes, that's very annoying, isn't it? So I validated the feeling, sort of like, see, yes, it really is. And then no tantrum, just being able to express it and say it and keep in control, but feel heard and validated. And it's like, oh, that was a good day. <laughs> and it's interesting, this, because one of the main jobs of a parent is helping small children who don't know how to, to contain their feelings but without denying them. Yes, that's so important. It's such a difficult balance. Any thoughts about how to do that? It is a difficult balance because what a parent very naturally often says is, don't be sad, darling. We're going to go to the zoo on the weekend rather than going, yes, it is sad that mummy has to be away for the night at work and you've only got me to look after you. What can we do about that? It's very sad. Rather than, don't be sad, we're going to have such fun. It's sort of like giving you the message that you're not allowed to be sad if you say, don't be sad. It's giving you the message that you're not acceptable when you are sad. Now, I've had many clients who had lovely, well-meaning parents who felt they were unacceptable when they were sad. 
So they push that sadness down. They don't learn how to express it. They don't learn how to put it into words. And before you know where you are, you've got someone with depression because they've got this free-floating anxiety or sadness or something that they've never learned to articulate. And if they have tried to articulate, it hasn't been validated. It's been, but we're going to the zoo on Friday or whatever it is. So that, you know, it gets pushed back again. So you don't want to repress the feelings. You don't want to distract from the feelings. And the other thing you don't want to do is overreact to them either. That's right. And magnify them. No, that's right. So if your kid goes, I've cut my finger, you don't want to go, ah, we've got to go to hospital. I can't bear the sight of blood. You know, that's really not going to help either. We need to get into this, what I call containing space. So we say things like, Oh, you are angry, aren't you? How about drawing that on this bit of paper about how angry you are? Or, yes, it's really sad your friends are going away and you will feel very sad for a while until that gap is filled by new friends. But it might take some while and in the meantime, you're going to feel sad and that's okay. What would you like to do? Yeah, but it's amazing how often you get bought off. The minute you were talking about that, I was remembering when um, the next door neighbours, when I was mm, about four or five, they were like an honorary aunt and uncle and they moved away and they bought me a present to try and deal with the pain. And it's it's amazing how you try and buy off children when really all they want is you to acknowledge their feelings. Yeah. It's okay to be sad when auntie and uncle go away and aren't coming back, but a sadness is a very appropriate thing to feel. And what we learn if we're not frightened of sadness like that is that it is tolerable because sadness is a part of life. So, you know, we have to learn to tolerate it. Now, one of the feelings that is very powerful in my room, and I'm sure in your room that goes all the way back to childhood, which we never actually really talk about is, I'm going to whisper it because it's so terrible, shame. Oh, yeah. Shame and humiliation. I think quite a lot of that shame and humiliation comes back from our childhoods, doesn't it? Well, like the example I gave earlier of not being able to do my shoelaces quick enough for my father, that was a very shaming experience. And I think unless we face up to the shame we felt, we are in danger of passing it on to our children. It's really interesting how shame and humiliation are the most kind of difficult ones to deal with. It's because we don't like owning them. How can you own shame? Well, I'm not a very good parent in this respect because when my daughter failed her driving test, I think for the second time, she said to me, (laughs) she said to me, I'm so ashamed I failed. And me, you know, 30 years in analysis, God knows how long practicing and all of that goes, oh, don't be ashamed, there's nothing to be ashamed about. And she said, no, mum, I don't want you to knock that away. I just want you to give me a hug. And I went, oh, yes, my bad. <laughs> so, you know, I as a parent get this stuff wrong. If someone feels ashamed, they don't want you to go, oh, there's nothing to be ashamed about because that makes you ashamed of the shame. Then you've got two things to be ashamed about, the original shame and then having felt the shame. So I was shamed into not shaming her about her shame and could just give her a hug. I'd like to report she has now passed her driving test and is a very competent driver. Just putting that out there. No shame. No shame. None. You have a beautiful image for how children are are different. And I loved this. And that's orchids and dandelions. So tell us about that. That is Dr. Tom Boyce's imagery. Tom Boyce is a consultant research paediatrician in the States, and he has researched for 30 years the fact that some of us are born more sensitive than others. And you cannot be scolded out of being sensitive. You cannot be scolded into feeling things less. In fact, that makes things worse. He purports that if you are an orchid, a sensitive child, You need the right temperature, the right soil, the weeds to be cleared away. And if all the conditions are right, if your environment is right, you will thrive. You will become the most beautiful plant. And, you know, you become a great artist or a great scientist in life, you know. But if you're given the same environment that a dandelion needs to survive, you won't just be middling, you will plummet. 
you will have mental health problems. You will have physical problems. You'll have asthma, eczema, allergies. So they need the right environment to thrive. But if they don't get it, they don't just go to middling. They go to rock bottom. Dandelions, they're still human beings. If you run a steam engine over them, they're still going to be flattened. But they can survive and even thrive in any crack in the pavement. Whatever you do to a dandelion, they're going to turn out more or less all right. You know, so if you tell them off for not doing the shoelaces up, they're going to survive it okay. Whereas an orchid might go a bit ooh So it's really important to know that if you've got a sensitive child, it's not pandering to them to get their environment right for them so they can thrive. It's keeping them alive because otherwise they might go down the route of wanting to end it all or something like that because they are so sensitive. It's quite interesting. It seems that their brains are somehow wired up differently. And he did an experiment with some children. He found that the orchids, their ears, if you take the temperature in the right ear, it's like half a degree higher than it is in the left ear, interestingly enough. And he's repeated that experiment with monkeys and with rats. And all mammals seem to have this thing of like, I think it's like, I think it's one in six or something are, are more towards the orchid scale than the dandelion scale. And this is true for monkeys, rats, kangaroos. He's done all these experiments and found out it's across all mammals. It's as though we need some sensitive types as well as some more robust types in our societies to make them function. So if you have a certain kind of children, you can have a certain kind of parenting style. Here, you have two categories, the regulators and the facilitators. Yes. And this is a real parenting divide. And the two can fight each other till the end of time, yeah, don't it's, they? It's, it's not much fun fighting them. This is research done by Joan, I can't remember her name, Aitken something or other. <gasps> Sorry, Joan, I've forgotten your name. Amazing psychoanalyst who's done a lot of research in child mental health. And she found out that there are regulators in terms of parents and they like their routines. They like sleeping separately. They probably won't breastfeed for as long as a facilitator. A facilitator is more with a go with the flow type. And if you lecture a regulator to be a facilitator, they'll just feel sick and go away. And if you lecture a facilitator to be a regulator, likewise, they won't like it. But I think you can be either sort of parent. You could be a regulator or you can be a facilitator. I mean, if you've got six children, you have no choice but to be a regulator, but, but to put everything in a structure and a routine. If you've got just one child, you can be a facilitator. But when the second one comes along, there might be a little bit more regulation going on, you know, so you sort of change and one parent might be a facilitator and the other one might be a regulator. This two can be fine and work together as long as they don't argue about who's best and they're each allowed their parenting style. Mm, I often have couples where one is a regulator and one is a facilitator and they argue it out in my room. And the idea that there's more than one way of bringing up children is a bit of a revolution. Yes. I mean, some children really thrive with a held structure and a routine, especially if they begin to go on the Asperger's spectrum a little bit, then a routine so they know what's going to happen when is the best thing for them. And if a facilitator has such a child, she'll probably be so sensitive that she'll put them in that routine because that's what the child needs. But each child as to what they need and when will be slightly different. And when you've got, you know, two or three or four or five children, it's just good, even if you cannot give each child what they want or need, that you can acknowledge those needs so the child feels seen and heard. So, you know, if you've got two children that feel sick if they're in the back of the car and you've only got one front seat, you know, one child is going to feel sick. <laughs> so, but as long as you don't dismiss these feelings of feeling sick and take them seriously, it won't be so bad. Because this is another message of your book, is that all behaviour is a form of communication. All behaviour is communication, yes. Yes. And you tell a beautiful story about a trip to the shops that really illustrates this and actually how to 
have a relationship with your child that actually allows them to be themselves and have the feelings that they need to have, perhaps you could share it with us. Okay. I'd just like to sort of do a bit of a preamble and talk about the four things we need in order to behave conveniently for other people. It's funny. That was going to be my next question, actually. Let's let's do this first. Fine. Okay. And they are that you're able to tolerate frustration, be flexible, problem solve, and have some sort of feelings for other people about what life might be like for them as well. So those are the four things we need to behave well. And if we've got three of them going on, we're probably doing okay. And I would have to say, this is also the four most wonderful things to be in a relationship with anybody, not just with your children. This is really the 101 of communication and relationship skills. And children need to learn these skills in order to behave conveniently to society. And they all learn them at different speeds, you know, just like they all learn to walk and talk at different times. So they learn to pick up these four skills at different times. So let me go back through them again. Number one is being able to tolerate frustration. Number two is flexibility. Three is problem-solving skills. And four is the ability to see things from other people's points of view. So with this knowledge, let's do the story. It's really good if we model those four cornerstones of behaviour as well, because then children do tend to do what we do rather than what we say. So if we live that, so much the better. Anyway, when my daughter was about three, she said, I don't want the pushchair, I can walk. I went, okay, you can walk. It's a mile to the shop and a mile back. Don't want a pushchair. Can I take the pushchair to put the shopping on? No, I'm grown up. Okay, fine. Right. So we go around Sainsbury's and I've got two bags of shopping, which I'm holding in one hand because I'm holding the child with the other hand. And she, I'm dying for a cup of tea at this point. Mm, I can imagine. And I'm a bit worried it's a warm day. I'm a bit worried the milk might go off if we don't get in the fridge quick. All of that's going on. And she plonks herself down on a step in the street to somebody's front door and starts staring at a crack in the pavement. My first reaction is, did not want to stop. And then I remember thinking about what it might be like for other people. She's not used to going to the shops and standing up for all that time. And the lights and the noise, she's probably been really overstimulated by the actual shop and all the decisions we had to make to make the food. So she's probably quite, you know, overwhelmed right now and probably needs a bit of chillax time. And also, her little legs, she might think they're pretty strong, but they might be getting a bit tired. So I think, okay, we can stop. So I sigh and put down my bags and look to see what she's doing. And she's following an ant with her eyes. And actually, it's quite interesting. If you look at the world through your child's eyes, you can learn a different perspective and sort of like Mm -hmm. to really study an ant for a bit is quite interesting. And as I'm studying the ant with her, living in the moment... (laughs) An old bloke comes up the road and he looks at me and he goes, is she winning? Is she winning? And I think, oh my God, that's it, isn't it? It's them and us. This is how people view parenting. It's either my way or your way. And he's trying to tell me that I'm giving myself a rod for my own back, as the expression goes. I wanted to say something really sarcastic at that moment, such as, it's not a competition. We're on the same side. but." I know how to behave well. I know the four corners of behavior. So I just imagine what it's like being him and having his baggage. And I just say, we're looking at an ant. You know, that's what we're doing. We're looking at an ant. Flo doesn't take any notice of him and he toddles off and we stay looking at an ant. And then she sort of gets up and she's ready to go again. I thought, sure, pick up my bags. And of course the milk hadn't gone off. That was just like a little excuse I made myself because I wanted to have an argument about it. And I just thought, well, that could have gone a lot differently than it did, but I managed to behave okay. So it was all right. I know if you have two children and one of them's dying for the loo, you can't stop to look at an ant. But what you can do is acknowledge the need. So if one kid plonks themselves down to watch an ant, you say, oh, you want to watch the ant. And I'd like that too. But unfortunately, Adrian here is about to wet his pants. So we have to get home and we'll have to see the ant next time. So long as you don't sort of just grab them and go, come on, you know, 
And it only takes two seconds to say, we'll look at the ant tomorrow. And it takes far much longer to yank them and have to pull them all the way home. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like if you're in a hurry and you try to put a two-year-old's coat on for them. Bad idea. You'll you'll have a tantrum. Much better to go, put your coat on and then go, don't want to put my coat on. Much better just to carry the coat and put it on when they're cold. Don't fight what isn't necessary to fight. Don't worry about having your own way. If you insist on having your own way, what you're doing is teaching stubbornness. If you're flexible, you're teaching flexibility and you get back what you give. There's quite a sort of an idea when you say, oh, how are you doing with your new baby? What people say is they're they're being very good or they're being very easy, as if good and easy children are what we want. Now, I can see you pulling a face at this precise moment. Why are you pulling this very dramatic face? What's wrong with having a good child? Uh, Well, it's the adjective, isn't it? It's the idea of, you know, slapping on the concepts of good and evil on something that's just a little bit of biology that's come out of your body. Neither good nor evil, but a little mini human being with a need for connection and sustenance and company. All these three things are really important. And if they're very, very bright and they're not getting the connection or the company or the sustenance they want. They'll let you know with this lovely little cry. And it can happen at any time of the day and night. And the best thing to do is respond to it because then they learn that the world is quite a good place and they can rely on it and they can chillax and they become secure human beings able to cope with a world that isn't a great place. So, We've covered quite a few of the important things for parents to do. I think if you could try and get it down to a couple of things, that what the job of a parent is, is to provide love and to provide boundaries. Yeah, love plus boundaries. Love plus boundaries. There's your recipe for parenting. Now, we all know why love is important. What about the boundaries? Uh, We all like to know where we stand. The thing is, when I first had a child, I thought... I'm just going to facilitate it. It'd be much easier if I just do what she wants. But unfortunately, I have my limits and, you know, a need for things like food and sleep. And not taking all their clothes off in Sainsbury's. Yeah, a few of those things. (laughs) So you realise after a while that you have your limit. And your limit is when you blow a fuse or lose patience or otherwise frighten your child by being a bit shouty. So that's your limit. So it's really important to put your boundary down before you reach your limit. And I'm not a very patient person. So my boundaries compared to some of my friends when we were bringing up children were quite strict. I didn't want to be a strict person. That's just my limitations as a human being. But my daughter felt safe because she knew, you know, the boundaries keep her safe because they keep me from flying off the handle. A big one was... I want my pasta and my sauce separate after I've made pasta bake. And I've learned later why children want this. It's something to do with their taste buds or something. But I wasn't that sympathetic. So I just go, oh, what a shame because it's pasta bake and I can't be bothered to make separate sauce and separate pasta. Sorry. So it's this or nothing. So, you know, after she'd missed a couple of meals, it wasn't so fatty after that. (laughs) So that was my boundary. I'm not going to tell her off for wanting it separate. I'm not going to be impatient. I'm just going to go, I'm not doing that because I can't be bothered. That's. I think that's another really important thing is that when you put a boundary, make an I statement, not a you statement. So I was always, we're going to leave the playground in five minutes because I'm cold and tired. I never said we're going to leave the playground in five minutes because it's time you had your nap. No, even if it was, because no one likes to be defined, whether they're two, 20 or 80. Nobody wants to be defined by someone else. So if you need to put a boundary down, you'd make it about yourself, which is, you know, I know, darling, that you feel very capable of taking the night bus across town. Now you're a teenager, age 13. And you know what? You're so good at bus timetables. I know you could do it. Trouble is you're going to have to wait for me because I'm not ready yet. I did that actually with my daughter. She, when she wanted to sort of get a night bus back from the other side of quite a rough part of town, 
in the middle of the night and she said she'd do it on her own. I just said, I'm not ready to let you do that, even though I know you're capable of it. But if I said to her, you are far too young to get the night bus by yourself, we're having a row. Besides, Mm. she isn't. It's just society takes advantage of 12-year-olds on their own. If people have been listening to this and they've been sort of clocking up all the mistakes they've made, I want them to be kind to themselves. Oh, me too. I make so many mistakes. But the great thing about making mistakes, and we know this as psychotherapists because we make mistakes with our clients all the time as well. Mm -hmm. What we have to do when we've had what I call a rupture with a child, a baby, or a client is repair the rupture. And so this might be saying to your 10-year-old, yeah, I know you're scared of the dark. And I think that might be my fault because I made you sleep on your own when you weren't ready to, when you were little. I'm sorry. I thought it was for your good, but I realized it was for mine and I shouldn't have done that. So it's my fault you're scared of the dark. Sorry about that. So the kid doesn't feel everything is their fault because you tend to think that if you made your parents cross or something, you think you're a bad person because it's too scary to think that the people in charge of you aren't in charge of themselves. <laughs> so you like to think you have some power. I made you so angry, mummy. I'm so sorry. No, it wasn't you, darling. It was me. It's really important to say my bad to kids. Oh, I made a terrible mistake once. You know what we're taught in psychoanalysis school? Oh, that right. the most formative time is when a A child has been potty trained and it's really important not to shame a child for what comes out of his or her body because that is going to mess them up for life, right? I knew this. I'd had the training, right? (laughs) My four-year-old was quite good on wheeze, but she could never be bothered to go to the lavatory for a poo. And what I'd do is I'd watch her face. So she'd be playing Lego or something. And then she'd do what I call is a poo face, which is like, uh, like that. So I catch this poo face, pick her up, plonk her on the loo or the potty. And, and most accidents, because she liked to have a poo after school when she was playing and really relaxed. Most accidents were averted. I knew the time of day vaguely. I knew the face. I could get her on the potty. I just thought sooner or later, we don't all do these things at the same time. One day she was playing her Lego, right? And I thought, why is she covering her face with her hands? And then I smelt the most god-awful smell, a poo. I lost it. Mrs. Psychotherapy Pants lost it. You knew you were going to poo and you just, on purpose. When you feel like that, you've got to go on the loo. Big shouty pants, crying, tears, everything. Not good. Not, not what I recommend at all. However, no more poo accidents after that. Mm. So, does your you, daughter we've all remember? got limits. No, she doesn't, but she hates me telling the story. She's uh, not had an accident for, what, 24 years now? She's 28. <laughs> yeah, no, she doesn't like me telling that story. So, sorry, Flo, if you ever listen to this, she won't listen to this. We're fine. We're good. She's listened to me long enough. She's heard enough of you. But. When you do that, it's important that you don't leave them with the shame. So the next day when I gathered myself, I said, I'm so sorry I shouted at you. You did not deserve that. That was me, not you. And they're never too young to apologise to them. Never too young to apologise to children. A parent asked me once, surely the child will feel unsafe if they know you make mistakes. They know you've made a mistake anyway. And you'll just mess up with their instincts if they think everything is their fault and down to them. But what was really great about my policy of apologising was that saying sorry was not linked to humiliation for her. And if she realised she'd done something wrong, like, I'm sorry I drew on the wall, mum, I just got a bit carried away. That's great. I know papers for drawing on, walls aren't for drawing on. I know that, but I just forgot. I'm sorry. And I haven't even asked her to say sorry. Now, here's another question, the same theme, but from the other way round. This is a wonderful question I was suggested to me, which is, what do you wish your parents had apologised to you for? Ooh. Oh, it's quite heavy, this one. When I was about 13, 14, I was on holiday with my parents in Portugal and my sister had a school friend with her. So she and the school friend shared a room and I had a single room 
by myself on a different floor from everybody else. And one night, in the middle of the night, I was woken up by frantic knocking on the door saying, let me in, let me in, a man. And I went, wrong room, or whatever it was. It might have been in Portuguese. I don't know, but I was absolutely terrified. And then my phone in the room kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And I was absolutely petrified. So in the middle of the night, not what parents want, I understand that. I rushed to my parents' room when the man went away from the door and gone on the telephone and screamed at them that this was happening. And they chose not to believe me. And my father came back to my bedroom with me and he picked up the phone and said, have any calls been put in through this number? And somebody said, no. And they went, well, she's obviously making it up then. Go back to sleep and don't make a fuss. And then for the rest of the holiday, which was fairly terrifying, I got these notes pushed under the door from whoever this man was that wanted to interfere with me. And I was too scared to show my parents the notes because I felt that they'd think I'd made them up or didn't believe me. Anyway, when my mum was helping me pack at the end of the holiday, she found all these notes and she said, why didn't you tell us? I said, I did tell you. But it was my fault for not telling them about the notes. So Mm. I never got an apology for that. And as you can tell, I'm still a bit upset by it. My father did once apologise to me for for something. I mean, it literally transformed our relationship. Something really important. He just said, I didn't understand. And actually now I've had the same experience. It was about bereavement. And it just transformed our relationship. It's so powerful. And and people say to me, oh, it's too late for me. My kids have grown up. It isn't. And I then forced them to read the book anyway. And a psychiatric nurse got in touch with me and she said, I read your book for professional reasons. You know, my children are 23 and 18. I thought what was done was done. I read the book and I realized that I'd made some mistakes. So I apologized to them. And she said, our life now is just amazing. It's transformed. And it was just quite a small thing of saying, I didn't believe you when I should have believed you, or I was acting on my fear. You weren't incompetent or whatever it was. She just made these simple, my bad, apology type things. And their relationship, she said, she would never have believed it, how good their relationship is now. And I would underline that as well. And it is just so powerful to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Whatever age your child is. And the other thing that's really, really powerful is a parent's pride. Like my aunt is 102. Her son is over 75. And when she says to him, I'm so proud of you, Peter, he beams. It means more coming from her than it does coming from anyone else. Your parents' approval somehow has a magic power that as a human being, you think, me? Have a magic power? But you actually do. And I'm actually very thrilled that when my daughter does a difficult piece of work or something now, she'll show it to me and I give it a lot of attention. And it means a lot to her if her father or I like her work. It means more than, you know, her boss's approval or anything. And if it means so much approval now, imagine how much it must have meant when she was 10 years old, for example. And I think we can be a little bit glib with our approval when kids are five or 10 or something. And we go, oh, good job. Lovely picture. Instead of giving that picture the attention it deserves. It's much better rather than going, good job, is to go, wow, I can see some chickens in a farmyard. Oh, and you've got a tractor there and you've drawn the wheels really accurately. You know, if you actually go into the detail of the picture and you say, oh, it's, the atmosphere is like a sunny day. I wish I was there now, but seeing your pictures cheered me up. You know, if you actually just say a few more words than good job, if you describe specifically what you see, it's meaningful and the child wants to go off and do more. If you just go, good job, like any judgment, that's a full stop. And it goes, right, I've done it now, now what? You know, rather than, what's that's interesting, what's happening there? The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. 
So let's look at a letter next. If you join our supporters club, one of the great advantages is you can send in a letter like this one that I'm going to discuss with my guest, Philippa Perry. I don't know what to do about my sister, who's three and a half years younger than me. I was the good child who could do nothing wrong as far as our mother was concerned, and she was the bad one who could do nothing right. It was only years later when we were both grown up that it clicked how our mother played one of us against the other. There was always drama in our house. I slipped into the background, but my sister held her ground and got the flak from our mother. Fortunately, we repaired a lot of the damage done to our relationship from when we were kids, but I feel I have to step carefully as my sister is easily offended. The problem is that my sister is pregnant. Our dad says the problems go right back to the birth of my sister and the terrible postnatal depression our mother had. Nothing was done about it at the time. My wife, who studied psychology at university, thinks my sister is at risk because history could repeat itself. She has one child, a boy, she's expecting a girl. My wife thinks I should speak up and warn her, but I don't want to tempt fate and cause postnatal depression. She'll only ask why I think this and she'll get upset about my wife and I talking behind her back. Is my wife right? What should I do? I feel stuck in the middle as always. I love that, as always. That really yeah. feels, felt like it came from the heart. Yeah, I think there's one thing that really stands out for me on this, which is my sister is easily offended. And I think I know why. It's because she doesn't seem to be allowed to have any boundaries. Tell me more about that. People are always talking about her, telling her what she's like, probably defining her as well. You know, she's such a drama queen. There's always drama around her, you know. And here they are discussing her again, not respecting her boundary. And I think he realises this on some level because his question is really, how much do I interfere, really? And I know this is my area, you know, trauma being transgenerational and being passed down. But I would say that unless she asked for advice, I wouldn't give it because I think it's transgressing that boundary. If he really can't bear not to give advice about it, and he hasn't really got any advice, he's only got his warning, I would follow my normal rule of defining myself and not the other person. So it's not, you are in danger of postnatal depression because this is the same dynamic as we had when we were children. No, because that's defining her. It's sort of like, if he wants to say anything, make it about him because it is about him. It's like, I feel the need to perhaps cross your boundary and interfere in your life like I'm always doing and getting into trouble for because I'm always offending you because I'm always doing it. But I can't help myself. So I want you to read this book about transgenerational trauma. The book you wish your parents had read. It's really easy to read. But make it about him and not about her because it is about him. It's about him feeling he's still the responsible one, the role his mother gave him. And he still knows better than she does the role his mother gave him. And he still wants to perpetuate that role. He's done some good and realised that they have always been played against each other, but he still wants to take charge of her. And she's an adult now. She's not his baby sister in the same way that she was. So my advice in general is only give advice if it's asked for, because advice is a little bit of a power game. Ooh. Explain that. Advice is a power game. To give advice without it being asked for, and thank you in this case, writer, for asking for advice, but without it being asked for is to get in the dominant power position. It's much more useful, I think, to say something like, oh, another kid, maybe you'll have your hands full. If you need any help, I'm here. Mm. Rather than knew what's the trouble with you and the potential difficulties might be. <sighs> if somebody said that to me, I would be easily offended. Just saying. And he seems to have a wife who also seems to cross boundaries too. She's probably not in her third year yet. We do boundaries in the third year in psychology school. I think it's very good if you've got some knowledge of psychology to apply it to yourself 
but don't apply it to other people unless you're employed to do it or have their express permission. Nobody wants to be psychoanalyzed unless they're paying for it, especially by family members, oddly enough. <laughs> and you've retired now. <laughs> do you miss it? I haven't really retired that much. I, I do do a bit of supervision. Yeah. And I see clients. I just don't take on new clients. Oh, I see. You're sort of I winding see, down. You'd say so, wouldn't you? But I do what I call product recall, which is like when an engine I thought I'd fix develops a fault, people are allowed to come back and see me. And I go, it's the same old trouble again, isn't it? What do you mean it was different this time he showered you with flowers? He was a manipulator from the start. Now, shall we start again with your dad? You know. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for the book, because it is calm, it is kind, and it is informative. And I mean, I've never read a book on parenting that I've ever felt I'd want to recommend. So thank you very much for that, because I certainly were recommending it. I mean, it is really, hopefully it's come across that it is a really kind book, because there's something about being a parent that makes everybody very, very vulnerable. And very you- judgmental, very vulnerable and ready to leap in. And it's not surprising really because children are vulnerable things. And so we have difficulty in trusting parents sometimes, which makes it hard for parents to trust themselves. So I'd say trust yourself. That's what I'd say. And it's okay to make mistakes so long as you say sorry <laughs> and don't keep repeating them. But no. But that's just that's just the nature of life. That uh, it is the nature of the life. It is that these things that were programmed into us when we were very small are very very difficult to get out of. I'm still fighting that. It, talking about things makes things worse. I keep on learning it that it doesn't over and over again. Yeah. So uh, don't be hard on yourself. We need to ask, as you're a witness about oh, what yes. makes life meaningful, what makes your life meaningful. What makes my life meaningful is connection. So here I am, there's an epidermis around me that looks like it's an edge. But what makes my life meaningful is when I can connect with another person, with an idea, with nature, with a story. I love connection. Life would not be meaningful to me if I couldn't make connections all the time. And I love the idea that the connection might not just be to people, it might be to ideas and nature as well. I hadn't actually thought of it like that. Yeah, that's what keeps me going. That's what makes me write books, you know, things Mm. like connections to ideas. It keeps you alive, doesn't it? The forever finding new things like, you know, dandelions and um, orchids. That was a new idea for me. that, That was Dr. Tom Boyce. He's written a lovely book called The... Orchid and the Dandelion, I think. Oh, good title. Highly recommended. Uh, This is the point, unfortunately, where most people are going to say goodbye to Philippa. But if you become a supporter, you can hear the rest of our interview, which we're going to continue in a moment. But for the time being, thank you very much, Philippa. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.